Chapter Twenty Two of Howarths. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Howarths by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter Twenty Two. Again, there's a chap. It was said of Murdoch with some disdain among the malcontents. There's a chap as come here to work for his fifteen bob a week, and now he's hand in glove with the masters, and getting a shop of his own. The shop in question had, however, been only a very simple result of circumstances. In times of emergency, it had been discovered that the American chap was an individual of resources. Floxham had discovered this early, and afterward, the heads of other departments. If a machine or tool was out of order, take it to the American chap and he'll fettle it, said one or another, and the time had never been when the necessary fettling had not been accomplished. In his few leisure moments, Murdoch would go from room to room, asking questions or looking on in silence at the work being carried on. Often his apparently haphazard and desultory examinations finally resulted in some suggestion which simplified things astonishingly. He had a fancy for simplifying and improving the appliances he saw in use, and this, too, without any waste of words. But gradually rough models of these trifles, and hastily made drawings collected in the corner of the common workroom, which had fallen to Murdoch, and Howarth's attention, was drawn toward them. "'What we models are this and models are that?' Floxham remarked. "'We'll have to make a flitting afore long. There'll be no room for us. North engines neither.' Howarth turned to the things and looked them over one by one, touching some of them dubiously, some carelessly, some without much comprehension. "'Look here,' he said to Murdoch. "'There's a room nigh mine that's not in use.' I don't like to be at close quarters with every chap, but you can bring your traps up there. It'll be a place to stow em and do your bits of jobs when you're in the humour. The same day the change was made, and before leaving the works, Howarth came in to look around. Throwing himself into a chair, he glanced about him with a touch of curiosity. They're all your own notions, these, he said. Murdoch assented. They are of not much consequence, he answered. They are only odds and ends that fell into my hands somehow when they needed attention. I like that kind of work, you know. Aye, responded Howarth, I dare say. But most chaps would have had more to say about doing them than you have. Not long after French's advent, a change was made. If you'll give up your old job and take to looking sharp after the machinery, and keeping the chaps that run it up to their work, said Howarth, you can do it. It'll be a better shop than the other, and give you more time, and it'll be a saving to the place in the end. So the small room containing his nondescript collection became his headquarters, and Murdoch's position was a more responsible one. He found plenty of work, but he had more time, as Howarth has prophesied, and he had also more liberty. "'You're getting on,' said Janey Briley. "'You're getting more wage and less work, "'and you're one of the masters. "'Either way, you'll go with gentlefolk a good bit too. "'Father says French makes hissing, 
and thick were you, as if you were a gentleman, you sen. You had your supper up there last night. Did she set in the room and talk with you? Yes, he answered. It was not necessary to explain who she was. Well, said Janey, she wouldn't do that if she didn't think more of you, nor if you were a common chap. She's pretty grand in her ways. What do you talk about? It would be hard to tell now, he replied. We talked of several things. Aye, but what I wanted to know were whether she talked to thee like she talked to a gentleman, whether she made free with thee or not. I have never seen her talk to a gentleman, he said. How does she talk to Haworth? I have never seen her talk to him either. We have never been there at the same time. This was true. It had somehow chanced that they had never met at the house. Perhaps Rachel French knew why. She had found Broxton dull enough to give her an interest in any novelty of emotion or experience. She disliked the ugly town, with its population of hard-worked and unpicturesque people. She hated the quiet, well-regulated, well-bred county families with candour and vivacity. She had no hesitation in announcing her distaste and weariness. I detest them all, she once said calmly to Murdoch. I detest them. She made the best of the opportunities for enlivenment, which lay within her grasp. She was not averse to Howard's presenting himself again and again, sitting in restless misery in the room with her, watching her every movement, drinking in her voice, struggling to hold himself in check, and failing and growing sullen and silent, and going away, carrying his wretchedness with him. She never encouraged him to advance by any word or look, but he always returned again to go through the same self-torture and humiliation, and she always knew he would. She even derived some unexciting entertainment from her father's plans for the future. He had already new methods and processes to discuss. He had a fancy for establishing a bank in the town, and argued the advisability of the scheme with much fervour and brilliancy. Without a bank in which the hands could deposit their earnings, and which should make the town a sort of centre, and add importance to its business ventures, Broxton was nothing. The place was growing, and the people of the surrounding villages were drawn toward it when they had business to transact. They were beginning to buy and sell in its market, and to look to its increasing population for support. The farmers would deposit their funds, the shopkeepers theirs, the hands would follow their example, and in all likelihood it would prove in the end a gigantic success. Howarth met his enthusiasms with stolid indifference. Sometimes he did not listen at all. Sometimes he laughed a short, heavy laugh. Sometimes he flung him off with a rough speech. But in spite of this, there were changes gradually made in the works. Trifling changes, of which Howarth was either not conscious or which he disdained to notice. He lost something of his old masterful thoroughness. He was less regular in his business habits. He was prone to be tyrannical by fits and starts. Go to French, he said roughly to one of the hands on one occasion. And though before he had reached the door he was called back, the man did not forget the incident. 
Miss French looked on at all of this with a great deal of interest. He does not care for the place as he did, she said to Murdoch. He does not like to share his power with another man. It is a nightmare to him. By this time she had seen Murdoch the oftener of the two. Mr. French's fancy for him was more enthusiastic than his fancy for the young man from Manchester or the Cumberland mechanic. He also found him useful, and was not chary of utilising him. In time, the servants of the house ceased to regard him as an outsider, and were surprised when he was absent for a few days. "'We have a fellow at our place, whom you will hear of some of these days,' French said to his friends. "'He spends his evenings with me often.' French has taken a fancy to thee, lad, Howarth said dryly. He says you're going to astonish us some of these days. Does he? Murdoch answered. Aye, he's got a notion that you're holding on to summat on the quiet, and that it'll come out when we're not expecting it. They were in the little workroom together, and Murdoch, leaning back in his chair, with his hands clasped behind his head, looked before him without replying except by a slight knitting of his brows. Howarth laughed harshly. "'Confound him for a fool,' he said. "'I'm sick of the chap with his talk. "'He'll stir me up some of these days.' Then he looked up at his companion. "'He has you up there every night or so,' he said. "'What does he want of you?' "'Never the same thing twice,' said Murdoch. "'Do you always see her?' "'Yes.' The man moved in his seat, a sullen red rising to his forehead. "'What has she to say?' he asked. Murdoch turned about to confront him. He spoke in a low voice and slowly. "'Do you want to know,' he said, "'whether she treats me as she would treat another man? Is that it?' "'Aye,' was the grim answer. "'Summer to that sort, lad.' Murdoch left his chair. He uttered half a dozen words hoarsely. "'Come up to the house some night and judge for yourself,' he said. "'He went out of the room without looking back. "'It was Saturday noon, and he had the half-day of leisure before him, "'but he did not turn homeward. "'He made his way to the high road and struck out upon it. "'He had no definite end in view. "'He had no definite end in view, at first, "'except the working off of his passionate excitement. "'But when after twenty minutes' walk, he came within sight of Broxton Chapel and its graveyard. His steps slackened, and when he reached the gate, he stopped a moment and pushed it open, and turned in. It was a quiet little place with an almost rustic air, of which even the small ugly chapel could not rob it. The grass grew long upon the mounds of earth, and swayed softly in the warm wind. Only common folk lay there, and there were no monuments, and even few slabs. Murdoch glanced across the sunlit space to the grass-covered mound, of which he had thought when he stopped at the gateway. He had not thought of meeting anyone, and at the first moment the sight of a figure standing at the graveside in the sunshine was something of a shock to him. He went forward more slowly, even with some reluctance, though he had recognised at once that the figure was that of Christian Murdoch. She stood quite still, looking down, not hearing him until he was close upon her. She seemed startled when she saw him. "'Why did you come here?' she asked. "'I don't know,' he answered. 
I needed quiet, I suppose, and the place has a quiet look. Why did you come? It is not the first time I have been, she said. I come here often. You, he said. Why? She pointed to the mound at her feet. Because he is here, she said, and I have learned to care for him. She knelt down and laid her hand upon the grass, and he remembered her emotion in the strange scene which had occurred before. I know him very well, she said. I know him. You told me that I would not understand, he said. It is true that I don't yet. Suddenly there were tears in her eyes and in her voice. He does not seem a dead man to me, she said. He never will. I do not think, he answered heavily, that his life seems at an end to any of us. Not to me, she repeated. I have thought of him until I have seemed to grow near to him, and to know what his burden was, and how patiently he bore it. I have never been patient. I have rebelled always, and so it has gone to my heart all the more. Murdoch looked down upon the covering sod with a pang. He did bear it patiently, he said, at the bitterest and worst. I know that, she replied. I have been sure of it. I found some papers in my room when I first came, she went on. Some of them were plans he had drawn thirty years ago. He had been very patient and constant with them. He had drawn the same thing again and again. Often he had written a few words upon them, and they helped me to understand. After I had looked them over, I could not forget. They haunted me and came back to me. I began to care for him and put things together until all was real. Then she added slowly and in a lowered voice, I have even thought that if he had lived, he would have been fond of me. I don't know why, but I have thought that perhaps he would. For the first time in his knowledge of her, Murdoch saw in her the youth he had always missed. Her dark and bitter young face was softened. For the moment she seemed almost a child, even though a child whose life had been clouded by the shadow of sin and wrong. I think he would, he said slowly, and I have got into the habit of coming here when I was lonely or at my worst. You are lonely often, I dare say, he returned wearily. I wish it could be helped. It is nothing new, she replied with something of her old manner, and there is no help for it. But her touch upon the grass was a caress. She smoothed it softly and moved with singular gentleness, a few dead leaves which had dropped upon it. When I come here, I am better, she said, and less hard. Things do not seem to matter so much or to look so shameful. A pause followed, which she herself broke in upon. I have thought a great deal of what he left unfinished, she said. I have wished that I might see it. It would be almost as if I had seen him. I can show it to you, Murdoch answered. It is a little thing to have caused so great pain. They said, but little else until they rose to go. As he sat watching the long grass wave under the warm wind, Murdoch felt his excitement had calmed down. He was in a cooler mood when they got up at last, but before they turned away, the girl lingered for a moment as if she wished to speak. Sometimes, she faltered, sometimes I have thought you had half forgotten. 
Nay, he answered, never that, God knows. I could not bear to believe it, she said passionately. It would make me hate you. When they reached home, he took her upstairs to his room. He had locked the door when he left it in the morning. He unlocked it and they went in. A cloth covered something standing upon the table. He drew it aside with an unsteady hand. Look at it, he said. It has been there since last night. You see, it haunts me too. What, she said. You brought it out yourself again? Yes, he answered, again. She drew nearer and sat down in the chair before the table. He used to sit here, she said. Yes. If it had been finished, she said, as if speaking to herself, death would have seemed a little thing to him. Even if it should be finished now, I think he would forget the rest. End of chapter 22